Hi, everyone. This is NBC10 Boston's question and answer series about the war in Ukraine. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Oleg Kotsuba of Harvard University. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, you guys, for coming every week. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk to you about something that the New York Post is reporting quickly that Russian President Vladimir Putin is, is getting surgery for cancer and putting the head of the Federal Police Security uh, Council in charge. Uh, the video is, is cited, uh, the article rather, is citing a video from a, a telegram channel called General SVR. I was just, well, I was just curious if, if you guys have heard anything about this, if, if there's any merit to that report and what sort of you might know about it. Olet, do you wanna start? Uh, sure. Um, I think we need to take it with a big grain of salt at this point. This is we, we this information cannot be confirmed right now. Uh, as as uh, people know, Putin is extremely careful about disclosing any kind of personal information about himself. Uh, I think this kind of um, keen interest uh, about you know Putin's physical or psychological well-being. <laughs> or kind of this attempts to get into Putin's head, uh, in fact, may distract us from what is going on on the ground, right? It's, you know, it's unfortunately very similar to studying other, um, you know, um, rather uh, terrible leaders in the past, you know, who have committed uh, great crimes, uh, you know, and rather than directing our attention to the victims, we would direct our attention to, to those perpetrators of those crimes. And kind of somehow in in doing so, still somehow elevate them. So I think we need to be very careful. Obviously, Putin is a mortal man, and sooner or later he will die. Um, whether or not this particular um, you know in, piece of information is true, I think we need to be very careful about. And in general, uh, you know, make sure that we are not redirecting our attention somewhere else from the atrocities that are co being committed in Ukraine right now. Great. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with Oleg to a great extent. And I think we we have to be careful with this information that we're receiving. And I think in general, I think this is a symptom perhaps of a more generalized malice of, you know, incomplete information and the flow of information. We don't really know what's going on. And I mean, Putin may very well have cancer. It, it may be some sort of, I mean, and I think, I feel these rumors have been going around for a while. Uh, but I also think it's a way, perhaps, for, for us to try to make sense of the situation to a great extent. And I agree with Oleg that it's a way to sort of redirect the focus and to uh, something that helps us understand why this thing is happening. And, and it might, I, I fear as well that it might lead us in a direction that somehow this is happening because of one person. And, and whilst to an extent it's true, we have to look at, at, the, at the broader uh, sort of conditions as well, the broader sort of geopolitical realities, the broader issues that are at play here. And we shouldn't just focus on the personality of Vladimir Putin and why he's doing what he's doing, because the reality is we'll never know why uh, somebody like that makes the decisions they take. I mean, it's going to be very, very hard. It's going to be probably impossible. And I think it's just a part of the huge construction of, of misinformation or incomplete information that we have to struggle with. So I'll agree with Oleg that we have to take this with a big pinch of salt. And, and whether he has cancer or not, I don't understand it's irrelevant. Only time will tell and, and we'll find out. Uh, and I wouldn't think necessarily it would be if if he does have cancer or some sort of disease and is going to. I, I don't necessarily think that's. I got the impression from reports that are, a lot of people are taking it as good news, 
uh, and I'm not so sure if it would be necessarily good news because it could bring further instability, uh, further problems within Russia, uh, problems of, of um, the leadership. So I don't necessarily want to go too deep into what could very well be a rumor. Okay, Maya? Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what said. We can't really know too much from this this kind of information, but I would say that, I mean, if it is true, one question is sort of what is the character and nature of the interim, the short-term leader who would lead while, while Putin is incapacitated? And I think that's also difficult to tell because he hasn't really been in the limelight. So it's one of those, we'll have to wait and see what happens, but um, it's hard to interpret it either as good or bad at this point. Right. Okay, and I'll just move on from that now. So I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the leader of the uh, EU calling for a ban on Russian oil and a new set of sanctions. Um, under under that measure, all EU members would, would phase out crude oil within about six months and then refine products by the end of the year. I want to get your thoughts on how likely this is, because I know energy sanctions have been something you guys have said is important in this conflict. So what is the likelihood that that will will you know actually happen and and then can we speak more broadly about how how the eu is is responding right now maya do you want to start with that sure yeah i mean i think it's going to happen in some form it could happen as early as this week actually and and the eu in this sense is ahead of schedule because they were sort of targeting the the summit at the end of the month so they have ratcheted up sort of the pressure to to have this sixth round of sanctions. And I think what's important here is that Germany has agreed to it. Italy has agreed to it, Austria. So you have countries that have been very reliant on Russian energy saying they will back it. Um, where you have some trouble really is with Slovakia and Hungary because they are almost entirely reliant on Russian energy. Um, so unless some kind of workaround is provided to help them, I mean, they would be in a situation where they, you know, could not actually function. So it's not as though they're trying to be pro-Russia or something. They just are talking about the practicality of, of this embargo. Um, so we might see something where perhaps there's an exemption of some sort made for, for Slovakia, perhaps, or Hungary, um, something that allows them to get some form of the oil still, even after the six months and then the one year deadline. Um, but I think the fact that this was announced by the European Commission publicly means there's enough support to do something pretty significant. And as I've said before, you know, it's really hard for the sanctions to work overall when, since the beginning of the war, the EU has transfer, transferred around 45 billion euros to Russia. Um, it's a significant amount. And so something has to be done about energy. Um, and another thing that happened in light of this move to sanction energy is that 11 former EU commissioners have actually urged not to sort of think about where else do we get the oil, but actually to move into heavy and rapid investment in solar and wind. So, so to essentially use this as a way to really um, decarbonize, to achieve the climate change goals earlier. And this has been really at the top of the EU's agenda before um, the war happened. So um, I think there, that pressure is actually helpful to start thinking about you know, it's it doesn't help to go from being energy dependent on one country to energy dependent on a number of other countries. Um, the EU should actually think of this as an environmental opportunity. Absolutely. I know that's something I've been thinking about while, while looking at um, 
energy sanctions. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with what Maya has said. I think it's, it's uh, two things are striking for me. One, that it seems that it, it took so long for these sanctions to be made public because I think they were the negotiations were being done behind closed doors, and I think we've they've reached some sort of agreement. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's, it's correct that Hungary and Slovakia will have probably some sort of opt-out to either prolong the uh, the period of six months to keep importing oil uh, from 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 Russia, uh, and two, I think I was surprised by the broad extent of the sanctions as well. So this is just not a ban on imports of Russian oil; it also bans any citizens of the European Union or any companies of the European Union to be involved in the transportation of Russian oil as well, which is also a very a very important step. And I think this is a very clear sign and a very good indication the European Union is taking this seriously. And perhaps, as Maya was saying as well, is looking at this as an opportunity to really break the dependency from Russia energy. And I think that's been a problem. And we've known about this problem for many, many years. And I think finally the EU is taking action and trying to break this dependency on, on Russian energy, trying to move the agenda forward in terms of renewable energies as well. And I think finally they're starting to look at it as an opportunity. I, I still don't think this will necessarily be unproblematic. Right. I still think there's a difference between, for example, the Hungarian government and the Slovakian government. Uh, the Hungarian government is still trying, as far as I can understand, is still trying to navigate this issue without necessarily outright condemning Russia as, as strongly as other members of the EU. Right. So there's still going to be some negotiating and there's still going to have to be some uh, going over the fine print. But I think in general terms, the agreement is there. And I think it's going to be only a matter of days before some version of it is implemented, but I still think there's going to be some pulling and pushing from several member states. And of course, this has to be ratified by all the members of the, of the European Union. So I, I'm sure there's still going to be some some bargaining going on and there's going to be a lot of uh, final, last minute negotiation, which is pretty much the rule when it comes down to the European Union, really. Hello. Um, so I think this is a step in the right direction. Um, it's probably the easier of the possible steps right now because oil, unlike gas, natural gas, uh, is something that is available you know, on the market right now, uh, also from other countries, not just from Russia. Um, and um, you know, it's something that is relatively easy uh, in relative terms to buy on the market. Um, you know, and that includes the transportation infrastructure necessary for that. So that already all exists. Uh, the real, the real um, pain that can be inflicted on Russia is with the natural gas deliveries, and there, um, you know, kind of the, the plans remain unchanged as of today. Um, so it, it's clear that you know, any kind, honestly, any Russian, um, uh, uh, any Russian-produced commodities, including energy, have become very toxic on the national market and in fact um, not just the states the governments but in, the consumers themselves are shying away from any russian products and so i think that uh, you know moving in a direction away from russian energy supplies is something that is going to continue uh, the big question here is you know to what extent the eu as well as other countries will be able and willing to reduce their dependence on Russian natural gas. And that will require significant investment, uh, so including uh, infrastructure for liquefied gas deliveries, uh, but also more, uh, obviously, more cohesion and, and um, kind of a sense of unity among the uh, EU members. And I think that's one of those paradoxes of you know, what Vladimir Putin has achieved with his, with his war. 
namely that uh, the European countries, in fact, are sticking together a lot stronger than before. Um, the other, I think, aspect here is the international energy market. Uh, we know that India, uh, which is the third largest importer of oil, uh, is currently negotiating with Russia about the purchase of Russian oil, uh, and they're trying to negotiate it at below market prices. So if, if a barrel of oil currently goes for about $108, they're trying to negotiate a price that is well below $70. Um, and so that that speaks to the fact that there are certain players on the market that are trying to use the situation, um, you know, and, you know, take care of themselves in terms of their energy needs, but also you know, that will provide the necessary monetary support for Russia to wage this war. And so the European Union, as well as the United States, need to start working with those international players on the energy market and exert pressure on them as well. Well, I know the, that President Biden had asked uh, Indian, uh, someone from India a while back, a, a leader, if I can't remember who it was at the moment, but like the, about trying not to, um, about not to, to buy oil from Russia. And I, and I do remember, if I'm remember, remembering correctly, that they had already, India was already purchasing some amount of, of it from Russia, but that, so would this be like an increase, a dramatic increase in the amount of, of the, of their purchases? Is that what's happening a lot? And like, what else do you think um, Western allies need to do to kind of put the pressure on, on India not to do that? Yeah, it's not clear right now, based on the information that is available, it's unclear whether this would be in addition to what uh, uh, India is purchasing right now, or whether it it is a renegotiation of an existing agreement. Um, indeed, the United States, you know, have reached out to India in the past and asked them not to buy any uh, oil in addition to uh, what they're already importing from Russia. Um, but given the, the steep discount that they could receive, I think the possibility is high they will ignore those pleas, especially since India has relied uh, in the past a lot more on Soviet Union and on Russia as a strategic partner than on the United States that, you know, that only recently changed, in fact. Um, so I think that, you know, kind of the, the, whether or not the United States is going to be able to position itself more prominently and more forcefully in this dialogue with, with India uh, is going to determine whether or not Russia will continue receiving significant income from energy sale, including the, the oil. Okay, great. Anything, Maya, probably you want to add on that before I move on to my next question? Um, just on this general talk, topic of the EU, I, I just want to kind of emphasize, you know, more broadly than than this oil embargo pending agreement that what's happening in the EU is so unprecedented and would have been so unthinkable before this invasion. So the number of moves that are happening behind the scenes to bring EU member states closer together, not just in day to day agreements, but also institutionally and for the long term um, is so significant. And uh, just yesterday, the uh, former head of the European Central Bank, who's now the prime minister in Italy, uh, Mario Drago, actually announced that he thinks the EU should move to majority voting on foreign policy, um, which up until this point, and I, I mean, it, it won't be something that can be passed right away, if, if at all. But I mean, unanimity and the national veto have been the cornerstones of EU foreign policy decision making, but what the countries in Europe are realizing is that they need to be able to move quicker, just as we have been talking about an energy embargoes, energy sanctions for weeks, 
many leaders in the EU have wanted this for some time. And so they're really talking about a fundamental restructuring of what the EU does on the world stage in reaction to Russian aggression. Um, so it's hard to understate that. And I think, you know, this this latest agreement on oil, which was so difficult, especially, you know, for countries like Germany and Italy, it's it's absolutely significant, even as we think of, you know, the details and how to enforce secondary sanctions on India and China and so on. Um, it is a major move. Pablo, Ole, anything to add on, on that? I, I would just want to add to what both what Ole and Maya were saying, and particularly the point that this is very much unprecedented for the European Union, I agree. Uh, but I also agree that as long as there's other players out there in the market willing to buy Russian uh, gas and Russian energy and Russian oil, uh, this is going to be um, not as effective as the European Union would hope or as the West would hope. And there's obviously going to be parties all across the world willing to benefit from the situation, right, from other oil-producing countries as well that are, you know, taking advantage of the situation. But I do think that the problem for Russia right now is that it seems to be losing allies at a very rapid pace, right? And we, we've seen developing over the last week or so this diplomatic road, to call it one way, with, with Israel in particular as well, over comments made by Lavrov as well, which is very, very problematic. And Israel was perhaps the last sort of Western country to a great extent that had maintained some sort of close ties with, with, with Russia for several reasons. So we're seeing how these, you know, all these relations are being sort of lost. And I wouldn't be surprised if this marriage of convenience between Russia and India will be tested in the future as well, um, eventually, right? So even for Russia, I think this is still a short-term solution to a much greater problem. And, and they cannot be simply undercutting uh, the market with the prices of, of their oil and energy sources, because eventually that means they'll be losing money. Uh, so all these things are going to have to play out eventually. But I still think... Um, there is still much more than the West can do, and I hope the European Union can get um, can really that this uh, this ban on Russian oil in particular is strong enough. And the draft that I've seen and what has been floated, what has been discussed so far, seems to be strong enough. So I really do hope that in the final stage of the negotiation, this version of the ban doesn't get watered down to an extent that is going to be giving opt-outs to different countries within the European Union which in turn is not really going to mean much other than the mere rhetoric that we've been hearing for a few for a few weeks. So I really hope the European Union gets the art together and we'll find that in the next few days if that is actually the case. Yeah, I, I would like to kind of direct attention also. So energy is one very, very important uh, field and we need to continue pushing for that, I think. Um, but the other part of that um, of the sanction package it includes also removal of further Russian banks, including the largest bank, Sberbank, uh, from the SWIFT system. Uh, so cutting off those possibilities for them to receive and send money um, will increase the pressure on the on the Russian economy. And then, of course, the uh, various further measures to support the Ukrainian economy. Uh, the most recent analysis showed that the Russian economy is going to lose about 15% of its GDP uh, as a result of sanctions and war. Uh, Ukraine is projected to lose or already lost 45% of its GDP. Uh, and that's in addition to the tremendous destruction of infrastructure, right? So that will require a huge investment again to rebuild if, you know, whenever the war is over. So we need to think about strategically also about how we can help Ukraine rebuild after this is over, because it is bound to be over. The European Union uh, currently uh, removed all restrictions on imports from Ukraine that are based on the association agreement. 
uh, we know that uh, there, there is a certain questionnaire that Ukraine has to fill out to become a candidate uh, country to uh, ascend to the EU. Um, and so right now there are part of discussions on how to support export of grain, for example, from Ukraine to, uh, to Western Europe using railways. We know that uh, Russia basically has stolen about uh, half a million ton of wheat from southern Ukraine, uh, from the occupied regions, and transported them to, to Russia. That's in addition to uh, various equipment, vehicles, even private cars, you know, kind of house equipment and so on. So uh, I think, you know, in terms of the, the kind of the damage that we inflict on Russia to stop the war, uh, we're moving in the right direction, but we need to increase our efforts to support Ukraine that is suffering far greater right now. And something else that, that the West is doing to, to deter Russia right now is having NATO troops conduct war exercises across Europe right now. Can we talk a little bit about what that, uh, what the implications are uh, and the significances of, of that? Pablo, do you want to start? Yeah, I think that's very important as well, because I think, again, it has to be the two there has to be two sides to this, right? One is the economic sanctions, and I think the economic sanctions are very, very important. But again, these are slow, right? And these take a long, long time to, to take effect. And we've seen the effect on the Russian economy, but really what you want to see is not just the effect on the Russian economy. What you really want to see is the effect on the Russian people, Russian population, and particularly the Russian regime. And this is going to take a long, long time, right? And, and I've been talking to some people uh, that are in Russia and that are in contact with people in Russia, and I, and I don't think... Generally speaking, public, I mean, it's very hard to tell as well, of course. There's no access to independent polls or anything. Our opinion service in Russia at the moment, or probably not, not for, 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 a, for a little while. But I get the idea and I get the sense that the, the opinion hasn't drastically changed against the war within, within Russia. And that is the objective eventually of sanctions. The objective of sanctions is that eventually uh, the, the cost of the war is going to be too high for the regime to carry on. And that has to be because they don't have enough money to continue with the war. And obviously the domestic cost, the political cost is too high to continue with the war. And I don't think we're quite there yet. So it's also very important to have this other element to it, which is basically NATO flexing its, its muscle, right? And, and showing uh, that it has the potential, that it has the, uh, the willingness. Uh, and really, I mean, we, we, we shouldn't underestimate that the United States, of course, is by far the greatest military power the world has ever seen, right? And there is no much point of being the greatest military power ever, if you're not willing to sometimes exercise that power. And, and I think it's very, very important that Russia, and particularly Putin and the regime, understand that if it comes to it, the West will defend NATO and will retaliate, and that the threats that NATO is, is putting out there are credible. Uh, so I think these exercises are important, and they're basically a, a message to Russia, right? And the rhetoric has been escalating for the last few weeks, and we've heard a lot about that as well. Here in the UK and Ireland, there's a lot of uh, anger about a, a report that came on Russian television uh, about supposedly a, a, a plan about de uh, detonating an underwater nuclear nuclear uh, weapon that would pretty much create a radioactive way that would pretty much destroy the, the UK and Ireland, right? And that sort of rhetoric doesn't help. And I think it's very, very important that NATO is seen to be acting and it seemed to be willing to intervene and willing to, to act way more stronger than it has, or basically way more stronger than it did at the beginning of the war. Because I think at the beginning of the war, NATO were very timid, and it took a while for them to respond. And particularly now that Russia seems to be weakened by the war, and now that it seems that Vladimir Putin has been unable to claim, claim outright victory, 
I think this is a very dangerous moment for the Putin regime and, and for Russia in general. And I think NATO should really take advantage of this. Absolutely. Maya? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting that, it, you know, as Russia is weakened, as Pablo just said, you know, the, the rhetoric about the potential to actually hit a NATO country has increased. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the sort of invocation of the use of nuclear weapons continues. Um, so I think... NATO is not sort of resting on any early victories in Ukraine. It's it's really taking this very seriously. And so all of these, um, you know, troop movements and um, exercises and sort of deployments are are unprecedented. Again, just like when I was talking about the EU and what it's doing, NATO similarly has not been in such a heightened state of alert since the height of the Cold War. Um, So it isn't sort of thinking now that that um, Putin's aims appear to be more in the east, it can sort of retrench. And it's worth pointing out as well that uh, this is exactly what Putin did not want. Right. Just as the EU speaking with one voice in unprecedented ways is exactly what Putin didn't want. Now you have a tenfold increase in NATO troops along the eastern flank um, that is closest to Russia. So. It's a major, a major escalation. There's a sense that the threat is really sort of highest since, you know, the, the since 1945, since World War II, really, because many of the guardrails, many of the, the lines of communication of deconfliction are not really there anymore like they were during the Cold War. And so I think this is why NATO is flexing and showing that it's prepared and also literally factually being prepared for something more explosive to happen um, in case that is the scenario going forward. And, you know, as we talked about last week with May 9th coming up, some sort of, you know, pressure for Putin to declare a level of victory, who knows what he might do when it comes to trying to to say that, you know, he has won this war in some form. Right. Okay. Well, we are out of time. I want to give you guys an opportunity before we end today to add anything else that we didn't talk about today that's important for, for our viewers to know. No, nothing. Okay. Uh, I do just want to mention that uh, actually before we go that, um, May the 9th on Monday will be a significant day in Russia. The um, Victory Day is a is a custom there, and um, and I just wonder what what we what are you guys expecting from Putin on that day, Pablo? What do you think? Because it, he can't declare victory at this point, right? Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what what he says, and and again. In terms of domestic consumption and, and for, for the people in Russia, he can pretty much spin anything as a victory. And he can claim that, you know, the fight against whatever he pretends to be fighting is going very well. And they can he can, for now at least, he can spin this as any form of victory. It will be very interesting to see what he says, not about what has been achieved, but what he says about what the objectives are for, for the war. And again, the problem with this when the rhetoric becomes against the fight against evil, against Nazis and all this sort of thing is, you know, you, you can't basically negotiate and say like, well, you know, we, we sort of eliminated a little bit of, of this existential threat, right? We sort of fought evil a little bit and we took a little bit of territory. And how is he going to spin that? How is he going to sell that as an outright victory? It's going to be very, very, very hard. So my sense is that 
Putin is preparing for a long war, right? For a war that is going to go for many, many years. He's planning on it. He's going to sell it as, as, a, as a long war of, of good versus evil, of denazification of Ukraine, whatever that means is unclear. So I'm very interested to see what is he going to say? How is he going to spin it? And particularly, I'm interested in seeing what his plans, what his views are for the future of Ukraine and this conflict that is emerging between between Russia and the rest, really. Great. Mayo, anything to add? Maybe just uh, one one kind of possibility there, namely that, you know, some analysts have argued that in, in absence of any real victory, kind of what Putin will try to do is to annex formally the, uh, the territories in Ukraine's east that have been under Moscow's effective control since 2014, mm-hmm. the so-called uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, and then also try to push through some kind of a sham referendum or something else in the currently newly occupied areas in the south, namely the Kherson Oblast and the region, right, and the parts of the Mykolaiv and Zaporizhia Oblast. So that that's remained to be seen. Uh, he is definitely uh, cornered himself uh, in the kind of system of power in the pyramid that he has built. He has to be the top guy. The, you know, the kind of the strongest leader, the most vicious one, and so on. So if he is not that, he will be overthrown. And, you know, most likely, you know, he w- his life would be threatened. And so he was definitely going to project that kind of strength, uh, no matter the cost, in fact. So we know that yesterday, for example, the day before yesterday, uh, Russia has begun again, almost indiscriminately uh, shelling Ukraine uh, using guided missiles, and as well as all kinds of other uh, long, long uh, distance uh, missiles, including from the Caspian Sea, uh, where, as we know, certain you know troops, Russian troops and and um, uh, ships are stationed, and so they're kind of that speaks, I think, to the level of desperation uh, about not achieving the the targets, the goals in east, the east and in the south of Ukraine, uh, not being able to push uh, to push in far, further to create that you know, southern corridor from those uh, Donbass uh, so-called republics all the way to the Transnistria. So, but it's going to continue still, right? They're kind of, they're using up some of the arsenal and are unable to replenish because also of the sanctions. Um, and so the May 9th is traditionally used for this kind of projection of power and they will definitely use whatever, whatever, you know, is possible on that day. Maya? Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is U.S. intelligence. So um, this projection of possibly the annexation of the Donbass region is somewhat credible, actually. Uh, U.S. intelligence has been pretty decent during this war. Um, So we could see something where he tries to repeat what he did in Crimea in 2014. even though he doesn't actually have, the the Russian army hasn't secured some parts of that land and the battles are ongoing, he may just claim that he can annex it, hold a sham um, election and put friendly Moscow leaders in place. Um, So this is is absolutely a possibility. Um, May 9th is also the day that the EU celebrates its founding as well, um, Europe Day. And of course, the EU is not some some actor that is going to be aggressive or go rogue like Russia. But, um, you know, I think it does have something to sort of reflect on and in some ways celebrate in terms of the efforts that it's made to um, pull together in unprecedented ways um, and to to try to get 
Russia to abide by the rules of the liberal international order. Of course, as my colleagues have said, there's so much more work to be done, but the EU has shown and through through most of its um, members, um, you know, combined membership in NATO as well, that it can really act as a significant player when it matters and even when it's difficult and even at personal sacrifice. Um, so that is also May 9th. And, um, you know, hopefully that message is stronger than the one that that Russia will try to put forward. Absolutely. And we will be meeting after that. So we'll be able to talk about the EU anniversary and, and what happens in Russia on, on their victory day uh, when we meet again next time. I'll look forward to hearing all of your thoughts then. Thank you so much.